Throughout NASCAR's 74-year history, getting the word out about the sport has always been one of the main objectives. And there's never been a better way to do so than to reach out through one particular medium, radio broadcast. They've been the perfect way to get the race out to those that couldn't attend the race at the track from the very first time a steering wheel turned left. Public address announcers describe the action of those in the grandstands from the very beginning, dating back to June 1949, when NASCAR held its first race in Charlotte. Throughout the 1950s, well, it was PA announcers, and one of the very best was Chris Economaki, who went on to become an outstanding television broadcaster with CBS Sports. At times, local radio stations would describe action at their local racetrack, but there was no radio network to fall back on. Then in the early 1960s, a gentleman by the name of Hank Schoolfield created the Universal Racing Network for races to be held at Augusta, Georgia and North Wilkesboro Speedway in North Carolina. And by the end of 1965, he had 26 Grand National Now Cup Series races on his network. Then in 1970, Motor Racing Network was formed by Ken Squire and NASCAR founder Bill France Sr., with Squire working as lead announcer. Other announcers lent their talents to the broadcast in those early days, such as Bob Montgomery, Charlie Harville, two-time NASCAR champion Ned Jarrett, and also drivers Sammy Johns and Dick Brooks. And then, as time went on, there was Eli Gold, Mike Joy, Winston Kelly, Jim Phillips, and many others that were so great behind the microphone over 52 years. One of those is Dave Mooney, a longtime turn announcer with the radio network. And over the past three decades, he has seen hundreds of races from his perch high in the turns as he describes passes for position and a style all his own. The native of Bear, Vermont, has a distinct voice that all race fans know and love and recognizes one of authority as a great storyteller. Race fans across the country and the world rely on Motor Racing Network as well as Performance Racing Network to bring them NASCAR races 38 weeks per season, including special non-points events each year. And doing so has been a large part of a sport for a very long time. Bringing the action to fans by radio requires distinctive imaginations and a visit with Dave Moody on this week's edition of A Lifetime in Motorsports offers some pretty interesting stories. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of A Lifetime in Motorsports, previously known as A Lifetime in NASCAR. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy Ben White, and we have got a very, very special guest, a very, very special treat on today's podcast. want to welcome in Dave Moody, the man from Sirius Speedway, as well as uh, the man known as the Turn One Guy for MRN Radio Motor Racing Network, a great guy. I've known him for a long time. Ben and I both have known him, and you know, you you don't get any better with uh, with Dave. I mean, a great broadcaster, a great friend, and uh, just a great all around guy. So, Dave, thank you ever so much for joining us here on on a lifetime in NASCAR. I'm, there we go again. I knew I was going to hit it. I, uh, it's a lifetime in motorsports. We just changed it over from lifetime in NASCAR to a lifetime in motorsports uh, about a month ago, and I'm still not a hundred percent into the groove on that. So. Thanks for joining us on the Lifetime in Motorsports, though. 
Thanks, Jerry. Hey, Ben, anytime I get to hang out with you fellas, it's a good day. Great, Thank great. You. Well, we really appreciate it. We're going to have a lot of fun here today because, you know, you've got a great history. You are, without question, a guy who essentially, uh, you know, pulled your stuff up from your bootstraps. I mean, grassroots racing up in the Northeast, uh, you're a Vermont native, and then your your uh, career eventually led to Motor Racing Network, uh, Sirius Speedway, and, you know, you've gone, you've seen it all. So, I mean, for, for folks, I mean, everybody knows who you are, but let's kind of just a quick recap of how you got into broadcasting, how you got into, get your, got your interest into racing. And uh, let's kind of go from there. Well, my interest in racing began at age seven. Um, I, I grew up uh, in the capital city of Vermont, Montpelier, Vermont. Little did I know for the first seven years of my life that I lived about 15 miles from one of the neatest little short tracks ever created. Uh, the nation's site of excitement, Thunder Road, International Speed Bowl, high atop Corey Hill in Barry. If you just heard Ken Squire in your ears, there's a reason for that. My uncle used to drive over 90 minutes each way from Rumney, New Hampshire to go to Thunder Road because he loved the racing there. And about the time I turned seven, I guess he did the math and he said, you know, I've got a perfectly good nephew just up the road. Why don't I drag him along? And and my parents were not smart enough to say no to that idea. <laughs> so he did. And my life was destroyed that afternoon. And I've never been good for anything else. Once I got a whiff of stock car racing, man, that was it for me. Now, the fact that at seven years old, it led to such a great career for you. Where did the, you know, obviously you, you really became a, a big uh, racing fan, but where did the broadcast element of it come in? I mean, obviously Ken Squire was a, a, a big mentor to you, but where did you first get the, the idea that to kind of combine your love of racing with talking about it on the radio? Mary, I never had a plan, and I'm not sure I still do, quite honestly. It's just been it's just been a series of happy accidents along the way. I was I was a devoted fan and fought my way to the racetrack every Thursday night that I could. They raced then and now on Thursday nights. And then one day a race car ended up at the gas station across the street, and, and that allowed me to transition into a highly unpaid and thoroughly untalented crew member. That transitioned into me writing a column, you know, a free column for one of the old racing trade papers. And somehow that transitioned into me becoming Ken Squire's assistant on the public relations microphone at Thunder Road, which turned into traveling all around the Northeast, doing PA work at a variety of tracks and tours, which ultimately transitioned into MRN. But again, I don't feel like I had much of a role in any of it. I was just the guy that was in the right place at the right time over and over and over again. Now, yeah. how, how long have you been with MRN now? How, how many years is it now? Well, it's it's almost 30 years, but wow. it's, it's been yeah, it's been kind of a weird tenure because, you know, the first few years I was just a part time guy. There was no truck series when I started, so you didn't need people to broadcast those races. So I basically would come in when they had two broadcasts going on at different places in the country and they needed a spare set of hands, I would either do that or I'd come in when Eli Gold wanted a day off. And believe me, Eli didn't take many days off. So <laughs> I, I had a part-time career with MRN 
and then I kind of went went away from it for four or five years, and then I came back full time, and and they've not been willing to let me leave since. Yeah, thankfully. Uh, and and Dave, here's a question for you, just for a split second in your life, did you ever think about yes, driving? A yes, car? and I did for a split second in my life, and <laughs> and very quickly realized that my talents lay on the other side of the chain link fence. The, yeah. the first practice of my first race, um, we were a really low buck team, so low buck that we didn't realize that the shock absorber on the right rear corner of the car was junk. Yeah. I went into turn one and that thing started wheel hopping so bad. I felt like I had a jackhammer in my trunk. I had no <laughs> idea. I was 17 years old. I didn't know what wheel hop was. I figured all race cars did that. So I just kept going. Well, finally, about the third set of corners, that thing wheel hopped to the point where I couldn't bring it back. And I spun it out in the middle of the corner, neglected to lock up the brakes so that I stayed where I spun, coasted down the track and wiped out my teammate. Oh, and at geez. about that point, I said, you know, stock car racing might not be for me. Yeah. What what kind of car or what what division were you running in? Was the lowest of the entry level divisions, the mini stock division yeah. in, in a uh, slightly better, but not much better than stock VW Beetle, and and it was bad. It was it was almost as bad as I was. So let's put it. Yeah, that way. yeah. What I have to ask. Sorry, what was your car number? You remember? Seventy-seven. 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 Okay. It was. It, let's be clear. It wasn't my car owner. Uh, my car number. It was the car owner's car number. And yeah. and I had worked a couple of years as an uh, unpaid pit crew member, and all the other drivers at some point or another said the heck with this, this car is junk and I'm not driving it anymore. And I ended up being the only guy left. So I became the driver very briefly. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like the Benny Parsons story. He went with a guy to the racetrack and his driver didn't show up. And the, and the team owner looked at Benny and said, would you like to drive? And that's the way Benny Parsons career started. <laughs> so that was the way Dave Moody's uh, career started, even though brief, but that's the way your, I guess your career started as well. Clear that's where any similarity between BP and me ends. <laughs> that's right. I got you. 10-4. Well, uh, so talking about your broadcast career. So, uh, I mean, just talking about MRN for a second. How did, if you don't mind, how did, how did MRN come into the picture? I mean, did you, you know, like all of us, uh, you, the way that you, at least for me, the way that you knew that you had bar, uh, MRN on the radio, you just kind of swing through the dial and then you'd hear the great Barney Hall's voice and you'd say you didn't pay as much attention to the, the dial number as you did Barney's voice. And and just so how how did you uh, apply to go to, to MRN? How did you know about MRN? I mean, we knew about MRN because back then the races weren't on television. You might right. catch two or three a year on TV and they were tape delayed by a couple of weeks mm -hmm. and they were edited. You know, you'd get an edited version on ABC's Wide World of Sports. They'd show the first 10 laps and cut away to the Acapulco cliff diving competition right. and come back and show you the <laughs> right. highlights of the middle of the race and cut away to PBA bowling from, from Birmingham. And then they'd come back and show you the end. So MRN was really in our neck of the woods and a lot of necks of the woods, the only way to experience stock car racing. But to answer your question, Ben, and, and I'm going to answer a lot of questions with these two words, the way that I made it to MRN was Ken Squire. Mm 
And, and he opened that door for me after many, many years of faithful service on track public address microphones around the Northeast. He reached out to John McMullen, who was running the network yep. at that time and said, yep. John, if you, if you ever need somebody, I got a kid up here in Vermont that isn't too bad that might be able to help you out. And literally within 15 minutes, John McMullen called me and said, we'd like to have you come to Daytona Beach and audition for the network. And man, I thought I had hit the lottery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I knew, I knew John and, you know, uh, John was a man of, uh, of very few words. Uh, but, but when he spoke, I mean, he, he had a lot to say, I guess is the way to put that. And, uh, yeah, and and you have been such a great addition to MRN, and and I say that with all, all, all respect to you because his, this is the way, this is the way I say this to you, and 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 I mean this sincerely. When it doesn't matter which racetrack you're at, and they'll the guys in the booth will uh, Alex Hayden will send it to you, and and you have such an eloquent way of putting your words into a turn. And uh, you're describing what's going on. And I mean, you say, yep, that's, that's our guy over there in turn one. And you have such a great, great way of, of describing what's going on. And, and what, what amazes me is you're watching, gosh, you're watching all these battles going on into turn one. I don't know how you do it and how you keep it together. I mean, I can't hardly hold a sentence together myself sometimes. And you're describing so many things all at one time but the but your your voice is i mean it's like a comforting way of putting it but yet you're describing six battles at once and i i don't know how you do it you do a fine job of doing that i refer to it sometimes as condensed chaos because (laughs) there are at least at any time five or six things going on at various points on the racetrack that we could and probably should talk about you have to be able to make a really quick decision and say, which one of these is the most important? If our yeah. listeners were sitting in the grandstand right now, which one of these battles would they choose to watch? And you try and make your decision based on that and and kind of give the people what they would want. Right, right. Well, see, there's a science to this, too, because let me give you an example. When When I was working for NASCAR Illustrated, my job in the press box would be to be on the radio and to talk to our photographers and to tell them what was going on without scaring them to death. <laughs> and see, if you scared them to death, that we'd have incredibly beautiful shots of the sky because they would, <laughs> the cameras would go straight up and say, you know, the, the beautiful clouds, the beautiful be- uh, blue, blue skies above. So you had to say it in such a way that there's a crash in turn four, there's uh, seven cars involved, but you had to do it in such a way as I said, to tell them what was going on and be concise about it, but not, like I said, scare them to death. And you have such a way of doing that to tell fans uh, what's happening without being overbearing. And, uh, but yet you're informative, but yet you're not screaming on the radio. And, and there's, there's a, you got to be careful how you do that because like I said, you don't want to scare them to death, but you want to tell them what's going on. So you are excellent at the way at your delivery and the way you, you do that. And I know it comes with a great deal of, of course, experience uh, and knowing what to say and how to say, and you do a fine job with that. 
came from the Squire School, Ben, uh, you know, and he would always talk about, you know, PA announcers back at that time, because that's all I ever aspired to be. And that's what he was teaching me how to be. And he said, you know, some of these guys, some of these guys come on screaming, it's time, cheeseburger, you know, and he said, if you start out there, where are you going to go when it gets exciting? Where are you going to go when the wreck happens? Where are you going to go on the final lap? And, um, and it's a battle sometimes because you can get, there's always something to get excited about out there if you look hard enough, but you got to pick your spots a little. Mm-hmm. So you mean it wasn't like Sunday, 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 <laughs> beautiful, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, whatever, so but- Sunday, Sunday, Sunday was a commercial, right? And you're right. trying to get people to come out. So yeah, on the commercial, you start out at nine and a half out of 10 and work your way up. Right. But on race day, man, if you start those poor people in the grandstands out by screaming at them for an hour during practice, they're going to, they're going to be tired, man. They're going to go yeah. home before the green flag ever flies. Exactly. Exactly. You know, Dave, you know, one thing I've always admired about you and, and kind of uh, found up on what Ben asked you about, you know, keeping your, the eye on the turn one, how to pick the right, uh, uh, the best action going on in that turn. But one thing, and I, and I don't know if you've ever been told this, I'm, I'm, I, I may freak you out how I'm going to say this, but this, I mean this with all due respect, and, and this is definitely a positive comparison. We used to have a horse racing announcer here in Chicago called Phil George F. He was very well known around the country, but he was very similar to you in the sense that he knew where to pick the action when it was happening. He knew where, you know, if there was five or six horses going in, into the turn, he knew which one to pick, so much like you did. I mean, you know, if this whole NASCAR thing never does work out for you, you could always become a horse racing guy too, you know? I mean, but I mean, seriously, but, but I mean, you know, it, it, it comes with practice. And obviously, like, like you said, Ken Squire was a huge help to you. It, over the years, um, what was it that kind of, made you you i mean you have such a great personality you have such a a great fan following your you know fans are loyal and listening to you you know you 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 are you are without question the epitome of what aspiring broadcasters want to be what made you become you and how you've become what you are today I wish I knew, Jerry, because like I said, I think it's all been a series of happy accidents along the way. But mm-hmm. but I will tell you this. I was the kid in school that when the report cards came in first and second and third grade, there'd always be a little note written over, over on the side by my teacher saying, if he would just stop talking, he'd be a really good student, right? And I, I was always that kid. I was I was always in the middle of anything that was going on, right? And my mouth was usually running, as it still does today. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, more recently, I think, you know, any popularity that I enjoy uh, comes, I think, because the people that listen Monday through Friday, three to seven Eastern time on Sirius XM channel 90, they recognize a race fan when they hear one. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I may be the guy with the microphone, but I'm not all that different than them. I come home after the race on Sunday night thinking, man, that was great. How soon until I can go again? And, And it's been that way since I was seven years old. And I think race fans probably identify with that mm-hmm. and say, you know, this guy's not all that different than me. He loves the sport almost as much as I do. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. let me ask you this. Let's go. Let's go back a little bit. You know, it, it's 
kind of unusual because of NASCAR's southern and southeastern routes to have a guy come from the northeast. I also think of another guy, uh, Mark Garrow, also from the northeast. But most of the guys are from the south and the southeast. How difficult was it for you to, I don't want to say get acclimated to the south culture i mean i know you spent a long time still living in vermont and were commuting back and forth before you decided to move to north carolina but how was it a difficult transition to go from the northeast even though there was obviously a lot of uh, grassroots racing up that way so that probably helped cushion it somewhat but what was the transition for you when you got to the south and southeast wasn't that difficult jerry and and here's why and and i don't think a lot of people think about this but I'm going to name some names here, okay? Okay. There are probably, and I'm not counting myself on this list, but there are more outstanding race broadcasters from the northeastern corner of the United States. There are as many from New England and the Northeast as there are from the Southeast. And let's just start with, with Mike Joy. You mentioned Mark Garrow, Alan Bestwick. Mike right. Massaro, myself, Dave Sutherland, who worked for MRN for many, many years, Kyle Rickey today, mm -hmm. all from the northeastern corner of the United States. And at the risk of being redundant, Ken Squire. Yep. It all comes back to Ken Squire. He knew anybody that was holding a microphone at a racetrack in the Northeast. He had probably helped them all along the way. He had probably mentored and tutored them along the way, the way he did me. And the thing about Ken was he never held anybody back, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he never, when he was working for CBS, he never looked at somebody and said, boy, that guy's got a lot of talent. I better keep him hidden under a bush because he could take my job someday. Right. He was never like that. And he promoted and he encouraged and he gave references and he kicked open doors for guys like me. And it's not a coincidence that all those guys came out of the Northeast. And when I got down there, it wasn't difficult at all. And I I didn't really notice it at the time because I never considered that it would be. Right. But when it wasn't, I'm certain that the reason behind that was with guys like Barney Hall and guys like Mike Joy and guys like Eli Gold, they looked and said, well, if he's good enough for Squire, he's probably good enough for us. If they, if he's got his recommendation and, and, and his, you know, thumbs up, he's probably going to be okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a million dollar question. Okay. If Dave Moody had not gone into broadcasting, if he had not gone into covering racing, what would Dave Moody be doing today? I went to college to be a physical therapist. Seriously? I wanted no, no. To, yeah, I wanted to work in sports medicine. I wanted to work for the New York Giants or the, or the New England Patriots, you know, taping up ankles and, and dealing with torn rotator cuffs. But the problem with it, Jerry, is when I went to college, I, I found myself on Friday afternoon blowing off my Friday class to go to the racetrack. And I'd, and I'd be there on Friday night, and I'd be there on Saturday, and I'd be there on Sunday, and I'd probably be driving eight hours through the night to come back and get home at four o'clock in the morning on Monday, which meant that I probably didn't go to class on Monday morning either. <laughs> and eventually it occurred to me that I was spending a heck of a lot of money and a heck of a lot of time working to become something that I wasn't sure I really wanted to be. And I decided, come hell or high water, for better or for worse, 
I was going to throw my effort into trying to be successful in motorsports, knowing that it would probably condemn me to to a life of beans and weenies, but I did it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's true. We all, you know, when you get bitten by that bug, there's no real cure for it. I mean, it's, you know, you could go to therapy or whatever the case is, but you you just can't, it's, you're done. You know, in my case, it was 11 years old at Darlington Raceway when my dad took me and a couple brothers, but you know, there's another guy that you and I loved dearly, like a father figure, brother figure. And he wasn't from the Northeast. He was from Elkin. And you know who I'm talking about? Barney Hall. And tell me a little bit about when did you meet Barney for the very first time? Do you remember? He met Barney the first time, the first day that I showed up to audition for MRM. I, I certainly knew who he was. Anyone that was a NASCAR fan in that era knew who he was. And Ben, I've been so fortunate, and I tell people all the time, <clears throat> I may have been the only person in the world to go to Ken Squire High School and Barney Hall University. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. And, and you, you, know, you knew Barney really well. Yep. Barney was not an easy guy to get to know. Barney would kind of stand off and evaluate you thoroughly to figure out just what your game was and what kind of a person you were, whether you were a team player or a glory hound looking for spotlight. It probably took me a year of, of working part-time around MRN before I felt like I got the Barney Hall seal of approval. And I remember the day, Ben, like it was yesterday. We had worked the, well, the Bush race back then, Xfinity now, and on Saturday, and I came back to the MRN trailer on Sunday. And as I came through the door, uh, the door, Barney always had the first chair just inside the door. Mm-hmm. And he kind of reached out and he, he put his hand on my arm as I walked by. And he said, boy, he said, I appreciate you out there because I know that I can throw you a curveball and you're going to catch it. He said, I can ask you something about Sam Ard in 1987. And you're going to say, yeah, Barney, Thomas Brothers Country Ham, number number double zero, Oldsmobile Omega. He said, not everybody can do that, but I figured out that you can. And I want you to know that I appreciate that. I said, Barney, yeah. you just keep throwing those knuckleballs. I'll, I'll field everyone I can. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. He, he was such a great, great friend to me, but a great, person. I mean, I'm going to tell you something straight up, Dave. And when he told me that it would be okay for me to write his book, I, I, you could have pushed me over with a feather and, and it was, it was just funny stories from Barney and it, you know, he told me, he said, he said, there's a lot of things we can talk about and there's a lot of things we can't talk about (laughs) and that's the trust. And, and, you know, I, I'm just telling you straight up, he was a great, great friend to me. But he would all say, I'd see him every time. He said, so how you doing? What's going on? You know, that kind of thing. I loved him dearly. And I was so sad to see him when he, you know, when he passed away. But um, yeah, Barney was, and and that was the thing I alluded to before is when you were riding down the road and you, you just, you, you were watching out the windshield. He didn't need to see what dial number you had on the radio. You just to spin that dial around and you'd hear that distinct Barney Hall voice wherever we were, and you say, "Man, there it is! I got MRN. I got him." And I, I can't. I search really, really hard to find the right words to describe Barney, and I don't know how to do that because he was just such a gentleman and just a fun guy and a down-to-earth guy. Maybe that's the way to put it. But it was such an honor to know Barney, and man, what a great announcer! Just 
just a down-to-earth great guy. And I think that's why everybody loved him so much uh, as far as the MRN guys, as far as people in the garage and the millions of race fans that listen to him every Sunday is because he was just like us. You know, he wasn't uh, boastful about anything and, uh, you know, but funny, funny stories. I mean, good Lord, he was so funny if you got to know him. You know what I mean? And you did. You did. You worked with him. He gave me, Ben, the best advice that I've ever received about surviving in that garage, because as you well know, Barney knew everything. If people only understood how many drivers, team owners, and sponsors ended up together because Barney Hall recommended you ought to go talk to him because he's looking for a driver. You ought to go talk to him because he's looking for a sponsor. And, And Barney said to me once, early in my career, he said, boy, and you know, it, it always started out, boy, I, I see you in that garage talking to people. He said, I, I know you're in there a lot, and it seems like they're telling you things. He said, but you never talk about them on the air. He said, and that's really smart. He said, because you can violate a trust and get a big scoop and be a big shot for about 15 minutes, <laughs> yes. but they'll never talk to you again. Yeah. He said, here's here's what you need to think. When you're, t- when you're thinking about, should I share a story with somebody or not, ask yourself two questions. Does this need to be said? And does this need to be said by me? And if the answer to either one of those questions is no, keep your mouth shut. And that has saved me so many times over the years. Yeah, yeah. It was this, uh, it takes 20 years to build a bridge and 20 seconds to burn it. And and that was his, that was his mentality. And, but just a common sense type mentality about Barney and but I can't tell you how much he was loved in the garage area but again that delivery that he had on the air it just I can't I smile and I laugh just just the funny stuff that he would come up with off the air had such a dry sense of humor um but I, I can't I can't even put into words how much I loved him he was such a great friend and I know you felt that as well that I love just just hanging out with him on a golf cart once if he had the chance. And he, you know, he'd come in the media center and, you know, he was always doing his homework, always. And he would check all these charts and check all these pages and making sure he had his act together, you know, before the races were done. And, but oh my gosh, just uh, there were so many stories. We didn't have enough room to put the funny stories that he had. Yeah. Uh, on the, you know, uh, that he told me, but we picked the best of the best and talking about Kale Yarber and David Pearson and junior Johnson. And, but you're right. He was in the center of all those conversations and funny, funny guy. I just, and great broadcaster. And I will, I'll, I will forever be grateful because there were a lot of folks that asked him, would you let me do a book? And he said, no. And yeah, I, and I'm so, so honored. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. Please don't take it that way. But I'm just, that's one of the greatest, greatest honors of my life. And he said, yes. I understand. I understand. You know, we used to, the highlight of our season would be maybe once a year, maybe once every season and a half, we'd go to dinner. And and Barney had his his special places around the circuit that he, he would take us or or suggest, strongly suggest that we go for dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. And once every year, year and a half, two years, we could get Barney to have a couple of amaretto sours during dinner. 
and that's when the stories that didn't make it to the book would start to come out a little bit. And yes. we, and at the end of it, and, and we would just sit back and fold our arms across our chests and say, boys, shut the hell up and let Barney talk because we're about to do some learning now. And at the end of the night, he'd look around the table and he pointed every one of us one at a time. And he'd say, don't we all ever say anything about these stories? Those are my stories, not yours. Yeah. Yes, sir, Barney. Never yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of stories, we want to get into some more about, you know, your uh, best NASCAR stories. But I've got to ask you one thing before we do that, uh, Dave. You know, you've done so much in your career. Um, you're at the pinnacle right now. I mean, but is there anything you have not done in broadcasting, in racing, that is still kind of on your bucket list that you still would like to do before, you know, before you retire? I mean, you've got a long way before retiring, obviously. But I mean, is there something you just have not done that you've always aspired to do? Never broadcast the Indianapolis 500. And and I don't need I don't care about being the anchor man. I don't even care about calling a turn. Just, you know, put me on the pre-race show. Let me say a couple of sentences and then throw me the heck out. I don't care. I can just say <laughs> that that point that I that I work the Indy 500. But, Jerry, other than that, man, you know, if I had a bucket list at the start of this crazy ride, Man, I've crossed them all off a long time ago. I've I've got gotten to do some things that I never dreamed in a million years that I would ever even see, much less describe on the radio. So uh, I don't really have many regrets about things that I haven't gotten to do. I've been very blessed in that regard. Okay. Now, I want to ask you some stories, but before I say that, before I do that, one uh, one bit of advice to both you guys and to everybody listening never ever eat Pringles for breakfast if you're going to do a broadcast because I have been coughing here and I apologize because I've been coughing in the background here and I apologize because I had some Pringles and <clears throat> it's just still cutting my throat. But anyway, so, you know, you've had such a great career, a, a long career. It's, I know it's probably hard to pick, you know, one, two or three big stories, best stories, if you will. But if there's one, if, if there is one story that, you reflect back upon as maybe your best time, the greatest thing you've ever experienced or the greatest um, thing you've broadcast. I mean, is there one race or, uh, you know, incident, something that, you know, it kind of typifies your career and, or, and what you've seen in it? There are a lot of, there are a lot of races that I remember very fondly and, and, you know, some that I'm proud of being a part of. Probably number one on the list, and it's for a couple of different reasons, would be that that great race at Darlington where Ricky Craven and Kurt Busch raced right. so hard and so respectfully. And, you know, Ricky won the race by whatever it was, three one thousandths of a second. It's the only race in the history of MRN that we did play by play on the cool down lap because they crossed under the checkered flag and they got to turn one and they were still crashing each other. So we just <laughs> kept on calling them, even though the race was over. and. Over and above the fact that that's a race that everybody will remember till the end of time, it was doubly special to me because I knew Ricky Craven since he was 15 years old. From the Northeast, in the junkyard right. division. Yeah, right. driving in the junkyard division at Unity Raceway in Unity, Maine. And I was the track announcer for the American Canadian Tour running super late models all over the Northeast and Canada. And we had raced at Unity that night on a Saturday night. And it's probably midnight and they're doing the post-race tech. And I'm standing next to the late Tom Curley, who was the promoter of the series. 
and this and this skinny little red-haired kid walked up right and he's got a fire suit on there's a hole in the seat of the pants that's bigger than the seat of the pants right because <laughs> it's the best he had and he walked up and he stuck his hand out and he said mr curly my name is rick craven i drive the number number 12 bomber car here at unity and my goal is to be good enough someday to race on your tour and two years later, he did race on our tour, and he won a lot of races. And about six or seven years later, he was down south winning the Bush Series championship. He went on to become a cup racer. And to call that – I called his first win at Martinsville, and I called that win at Darlington. And it was so special, Jerry, because I could I was literally flashing back saying, man, if the seat of his driver's suit was torn out right now, it would be the perfect flashback because I knew he'd win. <laughs> wow. Well, for sure. Uh, Dave, I, uh, you know, something comes to mind. Has there ever been one that your, your heart just beat out of your chest and you think I got to get through this race because I mean, it's so exciting. I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but maybe something that they're, they're just back and forth, back and forth. Uh, I, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. Is there one that really comes to mind that really excited you while you were telling the story? Yeah. It- Probably, well, the first time I ever worked a turn for the Daytona 500, I was in turns three and four, and it was the year that Daryl Waltrip won the 500 for the only time. Uh, And they ran, you know, a fuel conservation strategy that if they'd done it a thousand times, it wouldn't even have worked once. But they... (laughs) But they made it work. And and again, it was my first time on the air broadcasting the Daytona 500 from the turn. So so I was pretty ramped up. And there aren't many times that you can look at something and say, this is going to be history. This is going to be special. But you could see two or three laps in advance. One of two things was going to happen. Either he was going to make it and win the Daytona 500 or he was going to run out of gas with a lap and a half to go. And it was going to be big either way. And I got off, I remember getting off a line with about two to go. And they were talking about how he was doing everything he could to save fuel. And, and I said, if, the, if a seagull flies down the back straightaway, Daryl Waltrip's going to draft it. <laughs> That's how Great desperate line. he is. Great and, line. We, and we got to the final lap, right? And, and as they come into turn three, I know this is, this is my call. I've got him from turn three to turn four, and Daryl Waltrip's going to win the Daytona 500. And just as it came time for me to push the button, the late great Richard Brooks, Dick Brooks, who was working on pit road, keyed in and said, guys, his crew doesn't even know if he's going to make it or not. And in vintage Brooks fashion, he went on for about six or seven seconds, which was pretty much the entire length of what my call on the last lap should have been. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I may never work the Daytona 500 again, but by God, I'm not laying out on the final lap. So (laughs) they got to the point where I was supposed to stop talking and Brooks stopped talking. And I had a decision to make. Either I was going to go or I was just going to let the booth pick it up. And by God, I went. And I said, Daryl Waltrip's coming out of turn four, and I think he's going to make it. That was my entire call. But that was good enough for me because I I, I got my, my – I didn't know if it would be my only word, but it was my word. Yeah. Yeah, I know I know how Brooks would uh, – and he'd say, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, that <laughs> – it's like <laughs> – you know, he was bad about that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I understand. I don't, I don't, he would do that. So, um, I have the people down here, Barney. 
right? <laughs> a lot of happy people down here, Marty. Yeah, that's right. That's what he would say also, but he would do that. And uh, it was like, come on, Brooks, say what you're going to say. I understand. I remember that about him. Great guy, though. Hey, hey, Dave, on the flip side, and this is always the toughest question when you ask people this, you know, be it broadcasters, writers, drivers, crew members, what have you. In your career, what has been the hardest, most difficult time for you when you were on the air? Was it a, a crash, a death, what have you? What was the most difficult time that occurred and how did you get through it? I wasn't on the air at the time um, because it, it happened during during practice, but it's when we lost Adam Petty. Yeah. Um, and, you know, New Hampshire Motor Speedway was an hour and a half from my front door. So the minute they opened the gate, I was waiting to get in and they, they literally had to throw me out when it was over, you know, because we had a lot of years up there in the Northeast. If we wanted to see big time auto racing, we had to either go to Watkins Glen Pocono or Martinsville. And none of those were in the backyard to say the, to say the least. So when, when Bob Bear got us a racetrack, by golly, we were there. And, and it was, a, as you both remember, it was a tough time in the history of the sport. We already had a couple of incidents and I was in the media center and practice was going on. And all of a sudden, you know, you hear that they're, they're not under green anymore. And you don't really think much about it because they, you know, people spin out, things happen. And then all of a sudden the word came in to the media center there's a crash up in turn three and four, and it's a bad one. And we all kind of wandered out, or a lot of us kind of wandered out to pit road and very quickly determined that it was Adam. And, and I'll never forget, and you guys have been around long enough that you know this as well, when they bring out the blue tarps, yeah. that means that, that something really bad has happened. Right. And they, and they brought out the blue tarps, and it was just a – it was it was a feeling like I can't believe that this has happened again. And then beyond that, I can't believe that it's happened to Adam Petty. Mm -hmm. Because Adam Petty was going to be the redemption of the Petty family, right? He was gonna, he was gonna be the one that carried on the family legacy. He was gonna be the next great petty champion, like his uh, like his granddaddy, like his great granddaddy. And it all ended in the blink of an eye that day. And quite honestly, I don't remember much or anything about the rem remainder of that weekend. It was uh, one of the few times in my life where I ever felt like I just don't want to be at the racetrack anymore. Yeah. I wish I could just pack my bags and go home. <clears throat> right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ben? And, you know, uh, of course, the, the 2001 Daytona 500 was hard on all of us that day, too, because... I mean, you know, and, and again, you all both have been at racetracks a long, long time, like myself. And when things in the press box get quiet, very, very quiet, that's nothing said. And you just feel something's not right. right. And that's the way it was that day for all of us too. And of course uh, you were, you were there that day also, right? Actually, no, I was not at that time. Really? Um, we had, as it worked out back then, um, 
Eli Gold was hosting NASCAR Live, and they would do a series of shows in Daytona Beach throughout Speed Weeks. Mm -hmm. And then they'd they'd have Eli go out and call the turn. So it didn't make sense to bring me in from Vermont just to call the Daytona 500 when Eli was already there. So I was was actually sitting at home watching the 500 on television. And my phone started blowing up with people saying something's going on down here. Something's not right down here. You know, the ambulance just left, but it wasn't, it wasn't going fast. Yeah. And, you know, and, and very slowly the story came out and obviously, you know, one of the great tragedies in the history of our yeah, sport. For sure. Yeah. You, you know, uh, about that day and it, it's, it's a very ironic and personal day for me too, because that was my first day ever working for ESPN.com. I was supposed to go down to the race, but they said, no, we'll, you know, we're not going to fl- send you down there for that race. Just, you know, stay home and watch it from home. Okay, fine. But I'll never forget Dale Earnhardt in, I guess, what probably was his last ever interview. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing it. You can probably find it, um, um, you know, the, the actual interview on YouTube. But he said to Fox, he says, you're probably going to see something you've never seen before on Fox. That's how he said it or something to that effect. And I, those words will forever ring in my head because it's almost like he, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't predict bad. He didn't predict his own death, but he predicted something that was going to make that race more memorable than ever it was. And certainly it wound up being more memorable than anything else. For all the wrong reasons. Yes, exactly. Yep. Dave, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about serious Speedway. You do that every day, four hours a day, five days a week. Um, how do you how do you keep things fresh? I mean, you've got a, such a great audience to listen in. I mean, and then, you know, obviously you have interaction with them on social media and on the web. I mean, how do you keep the flow going, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? Well, the sport kind of does that for me, Jerry, honestly, <laughs> right? I mean, there's if there's not a new story every day, there's certainly a new story every couple of days. Right. You know, in season, you're never more than five days away from the next race, four days away from the next race. And you're either looking forward to what's coming up or you're looking back on just what happened. Even during the off season, there's enough silly season around to get you pretty close to to Christmas. And then when you get back from Christmas, we're already previewing Daytona. So of all the problems we have doing 20 hours a week of live sports talk radio, things to talk about are not on the list of problems. We've we've got plenty. But, you know, that leads me to my next question. One thing I've always noticed about the fans that call in, sure, they're going to call about, you know, the current day, you know, things that happened at, you know, the last week's race or what have you, or what's coming up this week. But they also like to talk about what we're talking about, NASCAR history. I mean, you have a lot of fans that say, well, I remember back, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or they'll start talking about, you know, former drivers, or former champions, as if, you know, they were like their best friends and they still do to, to this day. I mean, they'll talk about guys like Earnhardt or Kowicki or Petty or Pearson, you name the guy. You've got to feel, I would think, a special affinity when somebody like that calls and talks about history. I, I, I've got to figure that your, your, uh, your level kind of goes up another notch because it's talking about something you really love even more so than even today, so to speak. I'm one of them, right? I mean, and, and, 
sometimes I have to give a, a, a gentle little push in the back when someone will come on and say, I've been a fan since 1972. I was at Daytona when this happened. I've been to 73 races. I've been to Darlington 19 times. <laughs> and at a certain point, I have to say, okay, we accept your resume. Now what's on your mind? Because you know, given their druthers, they'll just tell you about them for the next half hour, right? And all the other listeners are falling asleep in their suit. But it's like, okay, I get it. You're a passionate veteran race fan. Now tell me what you think about right. the sport. Right. Yeah. And, of course, you get the ones who, in, in no disrespect, but, right, you get the ones that you, you have to subtly, you know, you don't want to argue with them, but you just have to move on. Right. <laughs> I mean, like you said, you have to, you know, they're, they're very passionate about what they want to talk about and, but you still have to move on. You know, I am. Um, my favorite question, Ben, when somebody will call and say, well, I think they need to fix this, or I think they need to change that. I will say, what would you like to do instead? And, you know, they'll call up and say, NASCAR is all wrong on this. I hate the point system. I hate the playoffs. I don't like this, that, and the other. And I'll say, fine, what would you like to do? Yeah. And their response more often than not is, well, that's not my job. <laughs> I said, well, it's not your job to call Moody and complain about it either, but you've taken the job upon yourself. So let's see if we can yeah. accomplish something positive right. here and, by coming up with a yeah, solution. And, you know, some people may not realize that there were times in NASCAR history when like for instance, 1973, when Benny Parsons won the championship, they went it on laps completed, right. and that's the way it was settled then. And then there were other times when, oh gosh, they've tried everything under the sun. So yeah, they you know NASCAR has got a, a pretty good point system now, I think. But they've they've tried, oh my gosh, in you know. They've tried everything. Let's put it that way. But yeah, can you imagine? And then and back in the seventies, as you know, you uh, Pearson would win and Petty would be in the same lap, and the third place guy might be three laps down, and fourth place right. would be seven laps down, and fifth place would be twelve laps down, and it's like holy cow! And you know that, but that was the way it was back in the day. And so yeah, we you know you got forty, you know thirty seven cars on the same lap, so to speak. So yeah, we got a pretty good system going, I think. Yeah, and, and you know, I, working in sports talk radio as I do, you have to be really committed to the concept of free speech, right? You you've got to be willing. And I don't, I, I'm not going to say that I'm the only host on the channel, but I am probably the most liberal host on the channel because whoever's screening calls for me, I tell them if they take the time to dial that number and they want to come on the air put them on the air. Mm. Don't tell them we're not talking about that today. Don't tell them we don't agree with your point of view. Put them on the air. Have faith in your host that, that I'll steer the conversation in the right direction if we need to. But if somebody is passionate enough about it that they want to call in and tell me how they feel, pro or con, I want to hear what they have to say. If I don't agree with them, that's fine. I mean, can you imagine anything more boring than everybody agreeing with each yes. other for four hours. I, I, I loved Rush Limbaugh, the late Rush Limbaugh. And he made a bazillion dollars in, in talk radio, far more than I ever will. So he obviously knew what he was doing. The one thing I never liked about his show was very few people who disagreed with Rush Limbaugh ever got to talk to Rush Limbaugh. It was always mega dittos rush. You've, you, I've never disagreed with anything you say. You're the <laughs> smartest man in America and you've never said anything wrong. It's like, 
Well, my God, how boring is that? Yeah. I want people to come up uh, to call and say, Moody, I think you're full of beans or Moody. I think you're all wrong about this or Moody. I feel totally different than you. And let's have a conversation about that. That to me is way more interesting than just mega dittos. And you're the smartest guy I know. Right. Dave, you mentioned, obviously, you know, your connection with Ken Squire all those years, all over the, all the years. What about a driver or a couple of drivers? I mean, has there been one or two drivers that have just stood out to be, you know, probably the closest friends you have, but they're also the guys you have to interview, the guys you have to write about or talk about? I mean, are there two, one or two guys that you are just so close and why are you so close to them? Today, that person would probably be A.J. Allmendinger. Really? And Yeah, yeah. And and I started out interviewing him, Jerry, back when he was driving in Champ Car. Right. My show, Sirius Speedway, started back before we were the NASCAR channel. So we covered everything. Champ right. Car, IndyCar, Formula One, drag racing. Had a blast back then. Right. And I... I was talking to A.J. Allmendinger before anybody knew who he was, right? Mm -hmm. And and quite honestly, back in that day, Champ Car wasn't getting a lot of coverage. You know, it, it, whoever was there broadcasting the race would talk to him, but that was about it. So he was more than happy to come on, and I was more than happy to have him. And, you know, A.J. is A.J. He's a little goofy, right? He's a, <laughs> he's a really complex guy. And he and I, way back then even, just hit it off. And we've always gotten along wonderfully. And it's to the point now, and everybody I think has got one friend like this, that you just give them so much crap and they give you so much crap in, in return. And it's like the worse you treat me, the more I love you. And that's the way he and I are. And, and for a while, when he would come on the show, I'd try and be, you know, Mr. Professional, you know, interviewer. Well, AJ, you have an average finish of 17.4 this year. And he'd be like, you know, yeah, we've run. And, 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 you know, I call AJ the Eeyore of NASCAR because it's like, AJ, you've won the last five races. What a role you're on. Yeah, but I don't like our chances this week. I don't know. You know, it, it could end at any minute. And finally, I just said, you know, I'm just going to ask, I'm going to act on the air with AJ like we act off the air. Right. And for the first couple of times, people would would call up and go on social media and say, oh, my God, Moody and Allmendinger hate each other. Did you hear the way they were going at each other? And then, and it didn't take too long. Finally, people figured out that if we actually hated each other, there's no way we could say the things about each other that we do. Right. That's so. Great. So, you know, when, when he comes on my show, he makes fat jokes. I make short and 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 lots of hair products jokes, and we just go, and people love it. And and I learned right then, you know, don't ever try and be any different than you are, because right. people will figure it out in the long run. What about the old timers? What what old timer that you know either is or is not still with us that you got along with uh, or still get along with the best? I mean, is anybody of um, you know, uh, we can talk about Petty, Earnhardt, whatever, whatever. I mean, anybody that stands out from, you know, the old time group, the, the guys from back in the day. These guys are not going to take kindly to being called old timers, but I'll take my I'll take my shot anyway. I love Rick Mast. Yeah. Rick Mast is one of the funniest people I have ever known in my life. And, and every once in a while, I'll be in the middle of four hours doing a show and I'll look over and I've got a text from Rick Mast. 
it usually means that I have to go to a commercial because I'm going to spend the next two or three minutes laughing right? and I can't do it on the air. He, he cuts me up. He's a really smart guy. And he and he has a really good historical perspective about how what happened this week isn't necessarily new because it happened in 1981, too. So I love Rick Mast. And for some reason, I've got a real sweet spot for those old time truck series guys. Right. Hornaday and Skinner and Sprague and Bodine, mainly because I've been in the room a few times when all of them have been together and there were beverages being served. And I can tell you, if you ever want to have fun, you get those four guys and about a 12 pack of beer in each of them and let them start arguing about who actually won such and such a race. You'll have all four of them would be yelling at each other. You didn't win that race. I won that race. And I'll say, well, wait a minute. We can look it up if, we, if you want. No, but out. we're going to argue about this because I know I won that. It's the greatest, the greatest thing ever. Well, you Oh, I was gonna say. One I'm more sorry. Thing. I was just gonna say. You'll find that the older these some of these guys get, the more they've done. You know, yeah. <laughs> Spear says it to me all the time. He said, "The older I get, the faster I was." Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I have true. one more question. And I'll turn it back over to Ben. And I know we're supposed to talk about history and NASCAR history in particular, but I've got to ask you this: 2022, we're wrapping up the season. We've got uh, what seven races left to go. What does the future look like for NASCAR, in your opinion? Jerry, I am so excited about it because this this new car, I I certainly didn't know for sure what to expect. I don't think any of us really knew what to expect. Uh, At the time that we're sitting here talking, there are 19 different winners in 29 races, which is phenomenal to Mm me. I I thought going in, a a lot of people thought that it was going to upset the apple cart and make winners into losers and losers into winners. I wasn't quite sold on that concept, but I did believe that it would bring 20th place a whole lot closer to 10th place than they had ever been before. So that some of those guys who on a really good day who caught a break could maybe finish 12th now could have a really good day, catch a break and finish fifth or sixth. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the way it's worked out. But I, I just can't find anything to be upset about. The racing has been really good. The fans are back in the stands. I don't even, the, the campgrounds have just exploded this year. I mean, you can't put an RV into some of these campgrounds anymore. It's really been phenomenal. And it's so much fun to have the fans back after being without them for a year or two. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Dave, I, I just want to say a very, very sincere thank you for joining us today. I mean, you're one of my greatest heroes as far as just listening to you on the radio every day, uh, every Sunday. Um, you know, like I said, when we first started today's podcast, you're like Barney Hall and the respect. And I say that in all honesty, that when you, when, when you're tuned in and you you're searching that dial and we hear your voice, we know we're home. And I mean that sincerely, wow. you know, you're on MRN. Oh, that's Dave. We got it. And your voice is so distinct and so well respected in this business. You do an awesome job in that turn. Every time we hear you, you're so good at what you do. And we admire you deeply. And I, I as a friend, admire you deeply. And I really appreciate you. That, that's very kind. Um, I'm, I'm still 
blown away by the fact that they let me come out and play with them every week. Um, <laughs> it, it's still a privilege. It's still a joy. I still, you know, I still roll out of bed on Saturday morning saying, Oh boy, I get to go to the racetrack today, just like mm-hmm. I used to. And, uh, and I get to, you know, I get to get to know, and I get to be friends with people like you and Jerry as well. When, as you well know, when, when Jerry reached out and said, would you be willing to do this little podcast of ours? It took me about a minute and 10 seconds to respond and say, Oh, heck yes. I'd love to spend <laughs> Yep. with you guys. Well, the, the, and it's been it's been as good as i expected and a little bit better so thank, well, thank you, for you. That. we don't do five four hours like you do but i mean you know this is a this is a slice a small slice of pie compared to what you do every week every day but we appreciate you being on we really do thank exactly. you exactly and i i echo the same things and also i have to say from a personal standpoint dave i i have to give you a lot of credit because you know, I know some of the turns that you're in, I mean, you're way up in there and basically in God's country, up in the sky almost, and you can never get me up that high. I mean, I'm afraid of heights. So, I mean, I give you credit for being up that high, but, uh, you know, it, it, it takes a, a great personality to really connect with the fans. You've been doing it for so many years, and I, I you know, God willing, you're going to continue doing it for another 20, 30 more years, hopefully, and we'll be here listening to you as well, too. So, again, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, and uh, we, you know, we wish you continued success, not only on Motor Racing Network uh, at all the races, but also, of course, on Sirius Speedway every Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 Eastern time on Sirius XM NASCAR Radio Channel 90. So, Dave, thank you again ever so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, fellas. Thank you. Okay, we'll be back with more of uh, A Lifetime in Motorsports right after this. Thank you. All right, once again, thanks ever so much for uh, day, to, or to Dave Moody for joining us here on A Lifetime in Motorsports. And we had a blast. I mean, Ben, I mean, I just love listening to the guy and, and, and even more so talking to him. I mean, he and I had lunch a few years back out in, um, in Kannapolis and you know, what was, what should have been maybe a half hour, 45 minute lunch turned into two and a half hours. We just were talking and talking and talking. Just, I just love that guy. He's just such a great personality, great, you know, but even better, a great person for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've known Dave, gosh, I can't remember when we met sometime in the, well, late eighties, I would think. And, uh, just, just a great guy for sure. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of fun. Well, you know, the one thing that Dave brings to the table and I'm not, you know, disparaging any other announcer, but he just is able to, much like Ken Squire, much like Barney Hall, he's just able to paint a, a verbal picture that it not only draws a listener in, but it also it makes you kind of visualize what might be happening as if you were actually at the track watching what, what's going on. And, the, you know, the one thing that... <clears throat> And I forgot to mention this today, but one of the things I absolutely love about his broadcast style is when he breaks into a broadcast and says, trouble in turn one or something to that effect. I mean, it, it catches your attention. You're going, okay, what's going on? What's happening? You know, and, and he will tell you immediately what is happening. And I really, really appreciate that both as a fan, but also as a reporter too, because again, he paints a picture and then, yeah, you know, he does. Of- and, and, and there's a way of doing that without, like I said, in the uh, earlier in the broad, uh, broadcast or podcast that you can do that 
sometimes and it's scary half to death that make you run off the road if you're driving or whatever. <laughs> and you don't want to do that. You just want to be able to get your attention, but not scare you to death. And and he has he's he's a master of of giving you information. Uh and also during the race, like you said, just make it interesting uh and keep your attention. And before you know it, you don't realize it, but you're kind of on the edge of your seat listening yep. to it. And uh, and you know, there's times that you're driving, uh, from place to place and you're listening to those MRN broadcasts and, uh, you know, 200 miles have clicked off, yep. you know, because you're like, gosh, I'm so into this race. I want to know what's going on. And those guys are so good at what they do. And, and, uh, but, but Dave's a big part of that. And, uh, just, he's, he's a great guy, class act, really, really enjoy him as a friend and, and a broadcaster for sure. It's funny. You should mention about the driving part because, I'll never forget, this is probably, oh gosh, uh, at least 10, 12 years ago, my wife and I were on vacation and we were driving into Michigan and, you know, it was, I think July, maybe, or August, whatever it was. And so I'm driving along and I got, I put the radio on listening to the serious broadcast and I'm driving and all of a sudden, you know, uh, you know, Dave's on, everybody else is on. All of a sudden I hear trouble in turn one. And I'm like, huh? huh? And I and like, <laughs> and so I was like, kind of like, I'm like, I was almost like, hypnotized by the ropes i've been on and driving for about an hour hour and a half and i'm so wrapped up in what he's trying to say that i want to drive and drifting under the shoulder and my wife goes where the hell are you going i go whoa, 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 back. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, i'll never it, forget that you know, you know so you just got to be careful you know to to say what you're trying to say without you know like i said not to be redundant, Amber, scare the person to death, you know. Well, it didn't scare me. It woke me up. I mean, like I said, yeah. the road was kind of hypnotizing to me. And boy, he woke me up for sure, though. So, but I'll never forget that incident, though. But anyway, listen, so, you know, obviously, you know, as we do every single week, this is episode number 80 of a Lifetime in Motorsports. And every episode we tie in with a car number. Now, we've got about another, what? 19 more weeks before we kind of we kind of run out of car numbers going forward. Well, we got some ideas going forward from there. So, but you know, this is episode number 80 of a lifetime in motorsports, formerly known as a lifetime in NASCAR. And then let's talk about the number 80. Uh when would did it first start? And uh tell us about you know um the you know who won in that car and, and that kind of thing. Sure. Uh well, the first start from number 80 came in a 200 mile race. Uh, at Daytona, the beach and road course. And for those to, uh, not quite sure what that is, it was a, a, a combination asphalt beach course before mm -hmm. the Daytona International Speedway was built. And that came on February 5th, 1950. And it was the first race of the 1950 NASCAR Grand National season, which is now the, the Cup Series. Uh, that particular um, race, uh, first time it was... Uh, used was by a driver named Roscoe Thompson mm -hmm. and he started 13th and finished 22nd and it was in a Lincoln owned by a gentleman uh, by the name of Charles Venable uh, and then as far as the first time the number 80 was victorious in the NASCAR Grand National or, or Cup Series as it's called today October 18th 1953 at Martinsville Speedway the driver was Jim Pascal, and he was driving a Dodge owned by a gentleman by the name of George Hughes. Uh, Jim led 73 of 200 laps uh, that day, and he passed Buck Baker on lap 128 and led the rest of the way. And that's a, a, an interesting day for me because four years, four years later on October 18th, guess who emerged into this world? 
yours truly. So How about that? That's right. How about that? So, and you know, one other thing about the number 80 car, even though it only had one win, it had a number of drivers who you know are notable. You mentioned Jim Pasco, uh, Bill Rexford, Neil Castles, Fred Lorenzen drove a time or two, Jimmy Horton, Dave Blaney, Andy Hillenberg, Carl Long, and the last guy to drive the number 80, which was uh, 15 years ago. I mean, I'm, I'm it's, it's again, this is one of those situations where a car number we haven't seen for quite some time. Last time it appeared in a NASCAR Cup race was 2007. And I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you, Ben. He's a current driver. He was, if memory serves me correctly, with a very low funded team at that point. Uh, he had I think it was only one start in the eighty in 2007. But again, he's with a, a team now. Um, I could say one thing, and you'd know immediately who I'm talking about. But I'll give you I'll give you three guesses on who I'm, I'm thinking about. Well, I, okay, I, um, I, I got to make it a little bit easier because there's there's 36 guys you got to go through. Okay, so let's just say he is from Florida. <laughs> well, see, there's the fact that there's only like nine million people in Florida. Uh, well, I mean, but how many NASCAR Cup drivers do we have that hail from Florida, though? Nine oh gosh, uh, I don't know. Okay, uh, okay, I'll, I'll give you a better hint. Bacon. Oh, uh, Eric Almarola. <laughs> Perfect. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. 2007. He was the last guy to drive the number 80. And uh, yeah, and then he went on, on obviously, to uh, bigger and better things. And, you know, I'm glad that he's decided he's going to give, uh, you know, one more year because he was supposed yes. to retire after this year. Um, I know that, you know, he wants to spend more time with his family. And he really is a great family man, a great father, a great husband. But, you know, he... He's got a lure to help his family even greater, you know, down the road. So he's decided to come back from 2023. And I'm glad to see it because he is one of my favorite guys. Always a uh, almost like a smile on his face almost all the time. You know, great guy to talk to as far as interviews. So it's good that uh, Eric is coming back to uh, Stewart House next season for sure. Yes, yes, for sure. Really nice guy. and really enjoy interviewing him. Always a great interview. Uh, any, any chance you get to talk to him and uh, good Good fan following for for our Eric Almarola as well. So yeah, I was happy to see him come back for one more year. Should be good. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one thing though. You know, looking at the history of NASCAR, and obviously that's what this show would primarily is a lifetime in motorsports. But we we are very heavy on NASCAR content from the past. You know, Dave Moody. Uh, again, we can't thank him enough for you know all his insight and being a guest on today's show. I mean. Um, you know, Dave is just a spectacular guy and, you know, I'm going down to Charlotte, I hope in the next couple of months and Dave and I are long overdue for a lunch. So I'm looking mm -hmm. forward to getting together with him and certainly getting together with you as well, too. And, yes. um, you know, we, I'm, I'm hoping I can get down there in December. That's what I'm kind of hoping for. That's kind of what I'm penciling in. So we'll see how that turns out, but it'd be great. But, yeah. But anyway, um, we've got a lot of other guests uh, on the on the horizon for us. Uh, I mean, we're still trying to uh, nail down some some commitments, but we've got a lot of great guests coming up and uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode of um, A Lifetime in Motorsports. Ben, any closing words on your part? Well, just uh, the fact that we are so appreciative of all of the broadcasters that bring NASCAR uh, to us each week. And it goes all the way back to uh, actually the the late fifties, you know, mm -hmm. when, when, uh, you know, we 
you know, Bill Franton Sr. saw a need to maybe to, to call on radio to to bring NASCAR races uh, to the fans who couldn't get to races. And it's, it was very, very primitive back in those days, of course. And, uh, and then as time has gone on over the past, say, 60 years, of course, it's gotten better and technology has gotten better. And, and, and as me, you know, me personally, um, my uh, memories of just riding with my parents and my family mm-hmm. and, and just uh, from place to place on Sundays at races I couldn't attend, but how nice it was to be able to listen to Barney Hall and, and Dave Moody and all the MRN guys and the, the PRN guys uh, that brought us races uh, for Speedway Motorsports Incorporated, all those guys, just how great it was to, and is, to, to listen to them each Sunday. Um, it's just great to have radio broadcasts and TV broadcasts and, and just bringing those great voices to us each week is, is great to have. Well, you know, and then the thing is that even in today's modern era where all the NASCAR races are on Sirius XM NASCAR radio channel 90, uh, both, you know, either they, they'll pick up the broadcast from either MRN or PRN. And by the way, PRN, you know, we haven't really talked a lot about them, but they, those guys do a great job as well too. But the, the one thing, you know, if you don't have Sirius XM NASCAR radio, uh, more often than not, and it may be, you know, you may have to really do a little digging on your uh, AM or FM uh, radio. Somewhere along the way, you're going to probably find a station that, that picks up the uh, the broadcast. So, you know, you're never really too far away from hearing what's going on, you know, in the world of NASCAR. So, but anyway, Ben, as always, a pleasure working with you today. And uh, it was uh, made even more special. Great treat by having Dave Moody from Motor Racing Network and Sirius uh, Sirius Speedway from Sirius XM NASCAR Radio, and uh, look forward to next week. And uh, we'll have probably another surprise guest too as well. So, yeah, should be fun. Yes, please tune in. All right, all right. For Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Thank you, everyone, for ever so much for joining us on a lifetime in motorsports. Again, formerly known as Lifetime in NASCAR, and we will catch you next week right here on a Lifetime in Motorsports podcast. Take care, everyone. Have a good week.